Matthew 5, uh, I'll read the text and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, starting at verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything to be thrown out, uh, uh, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Um, instead of sort of an opening story, I want to I recap where we've been. So the Gospel of Matthew is where we are. Who is Matthew? If you're new with us, we, we actually interact with some questions. Who is Matthew? Right, tax collector. Uh, he's an individual who um, most would say are, is the author of this book. Um, what do most people think about tax collectors? I hate them, yeah. They were the worst. They were the sellouts. They, they were the people that were in cahoots with this Roman um, imperial world. This whole group of outsiders uh, from Rome who were um, really kind of keeping their boots on the necks of the people that they oversaw. And uh, a big army requires money. And so Rome had plenty of ways to tax people and uh, would often actually enlist locals that kind of were willing to sell out their own people to do so. And so um, Matthew was one of those individuals. And for many, I don't, we don't know Matthew's backstory. We don't know why he did it. We don't know if he just really wanted the money. We don't know if he just never found a spot in God's people. He never found a home and never found that the story of God's people was a place for him uh, for various reasons and decided, you know what? Um, Rome, Rome has a better story for me than my own people. We, we just don't know. Um, there's conjecture, but we just don't know. And as he started his gospel, what did he do? What's the opening part of the gospel? We covered this in Christmas time. How did he start? Yeah, with a genealogy. And what do we say he highlighted in his genealogy? All, yeah, all the people who weren't supposed to be in it, the outcasts, the outside, these Gentile people, all these people who just didn't fit the story. And he's highlighting David's deal with Bathsheba. He's highlighting the broken parts. He's highlighting Babylon. Instead of just going pretty linear in how he wants to tell it, he, he tells the outsider. Because once again, who is Matthew? He's the outsider. He was the one that everybody would have said, no, they, they aren't part of God's people, God's community. They are not representative of what God's really about. And Matthew was one who, who had, had Jesus come to him and say, no, you can be a part of my kingdom. And so right from the get-go, Matthew's doing that. Um, and, and right from the get-go, he highlights the story of the birth of Jesus. And, and instead of in, in the mighty Jerusalem or uh, in this great lineage of people, he's born to kind of a couple of nobodies. In Bethlehem, which is a very insignificant town, and he grows up in Nazareth, which is a very insignificant place. And Matthew also wants us to see just how much Jesus is this Israel-type figure. He goes down to Egypt, and he comes back from Egypt, and he goes out to the desert to be tested for 40 days, and, and he has all these sort of pictures of the sort of um, Israel story in Jesus. And then he starts calling his disciples. 
And he doesn't do it. He doesn't go to the synagogues to find the best and the brightest. He doesn't go to the places where those people who know their Torah inside and out are hanging out. He doesn't go find some priests or Levites to go enlist of his disciples like every other rabbi would. He finds some fishermen who had kind of flunked out after their, their first round of probably education and said, you, you are going to be my disciples. That at some point what he is, he sees that he can replicate into these four men up to this point. And then Jesus starts proclaiming a kingdom. Now remember, if he's Messiah, which I think Matthew's already starting to establish, he's, he's a king. There's something kingly about Jesus, and he's proclaiming a kingdom. But he's proclaiming a kingdom that so far doesn't seem to totally look like what everybody expects. And after calling his disciples, he goes around uh, uh, Galilee, and what does he do? He starts interacting with just about every person on the outside. There's epileptics and paralytics and people with diseases and demon-possessed and uh, just about everybody that would have been not a part of the religious practices of Israel. They wouldn't be allowed in synagogue. They certainly wouldn't be allowed in temple. They would have been on the outside. They would have been forgotten about. And that's where Jesus goes first to these blue-collar four boys and to those that everybody probably had written off. And as this Sermon on the Mount that we get to starts, we find out that this is the crowd. And there's people from the Decapolis, which is like the pagan of the pagans. And there's people from Judea, which is like... The, the people, uh, almost like the, the North versus the South in America, they're, they're the other groups that also look down upon the people in Galilee. And they're all there to hear this Jesus. And when Jesus opens his mouth in Matthew to invite for the first time, to give three chapters that we're going to experience of one of the most um, uh, memorable parts of Jesus' teaching, he says, look, blessed, God's favor, And it's not, once again, on all the people that have it all together. It's blessed are you who mourn. God's favor are you who are poor in spirit. God's favor on you who hunger and thirst for for justice or righteousness in the world. And it would have been upside down. And he speaks to that. And and then he turns, I would argue, and, and almost addresses his disciples to say, and blessed are you when people persecute. If you start understanding my kingdom, how, how upside down it really is, oh, blessed are you, because people are not going to buy this. And just like the prophets of old, they're going to reject this. But your reward is great. And then he continues here. And I think he's continuing, in some ways, blessings. Because he says, you are the salt of the earth, but a salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, great. This is a pretty popular text. Uh, I think a fair amount of us are uh, used to it. I, I want to work against the lullaby effect. Uh, I think sometimes we're so familiar with certain teachings that sometimes we, we miss maybe what they're actually saying. So first off, who is the you? Yeah, there's some, there's some back and forth, whether or not it's just the disciples or whether it's this whole crowd. And people that are following Jesus would also be called disciples. But um, it's, it's this crowd. Now, remember, the use 
It's the wonder of living in the South is that we could say y'all. And I wish translations would do that because that's what he's saying. It's y'all are the salts of the earth. And he's referring to the disciples, the four fishermen, these blue-collar outcasts, to the lame, to the sick, to the capitalist pagans, to the paralytics, and perhaps just this island of misfit toys. People who are typically have nothing to offer and really are probably there only to ask for something or to listen to Jesus' teaching. People who are mourning, people who are poor in spirit. This is not the religious all-stars of Israel. We get no mention. We will get plenty of mention of Pharisees, priests, and Levites throughout the storylines. No mention of that crowd showing up here. And what's the next word? You what? Are. Yes. You are. What tense is are? Present tense. So is Jesus necessarily moving into something new? I would say no. He's, once again, pronouncing a blessing. But in this case, I think pronouncing a vocation or identity for these people. Because what he's saying is not something to go do. He's not saying go become salt, go become light, go go do something to be those things. He is saying right from the get-go, you are these things. It's identity and vocation to fishermen, to the outsiders, to unclean. You are salt. You are light. And not commanded to be. It's a blessing. It's a blessing, not a, not a, and, and bestowing, not a task for them necessarily. So let's talk about salt first. Uh, we ran into this earlier in the Beatitudes that the word um, earth uh, is also the word land. And I would argue, if you are a Jewish writer writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, which Matthew would have been, that the word land would have been much, much more a default than the word earth. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the land, what would that mean to them? And now, Israelites are familiar with salt, right? Why? Why would, it, why would Israelites have no problem with salt? Like, just as a material, yeah, yeah, but, but like, is salt in abundance somewhere around Israel? Yeah, the Dead Sea, right? Uh, we, we did have the wonder of going there this summer. Uh, there is my son experiencing the weirdest effect in the world. If you, who, who has floated in the Dead Sea? It is weird, isn't it? And, and it's like, you, you are above the water basically the whole time. It just feels totally weird. And so you get to float. And, and at the bottom where we were, were these things. All these little salt balls. The whole ground was full of these like little salt balls. And the salt is everywhere. And, and, and even like the handrails and stuff like that would just be covered in salt. And, and clear, pure salt. It's not, it's not full of soil or dirt or anything like that. It's just salt. And so Israel always had access to salt. Salt was a very common thing uh, for the Israelites. It wasn't a, a rare or expensive material for them. It was something that they had a fair amount of access to. You could use it for food. You could use it to keep spoilage and things like that uh, for happening or just to make your food taste good. Um, there's plenty of applications for it. And I think those applications are good. I've heard plenty of sermons dealing with all those applications. But once again, Matthew is very layered. And I think Matthew is very Jewish, and Matthew is very Old Testament-oriented. And salt throughout the Old Testament has a very specific usage. 
There's plenty of times where salt references actually the Dead Sea. Uh, there's the Salt Sea, and it comes up a lot in the Old Testament. But there's also one other usage that comes up multiple times in the Old Testament. And I'll give you just a few of them. Leviticus 2.13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall, not, you shall let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. And with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And so uh, the Israelites are instructed as part of the grain offering, which is just one of the offerings that they had to bring to the temple. You, you, you bring salt to it. But the salt is part of a, of a covenant of somehow or connected to the covenant of somehow. And I would argue, as we keep reading, that it's a, it's a reminder of what the covenant is. Numbers 18, 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give you. So um, people would bring the offerings to the temple. This is instructions that the priests actually get to partake of those, uh, um, of those offerings. And to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due, it is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Uh, and so once again, we get the language connecting salt as a, as a part of a covenant in some ways. In 2 Chronicles 13.5, uh, ought you not to know uh, that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship of, over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. And so we get a religious usage of the term. Throughout the, I mean, that, that, is a, that is a breath of the Old Testament from uh, some earliest days of the Old Testament to David. And yes, food, preservative, absolutely. But there's also this connection. And multiple commentators take different interpretations on this, but what I think Jesus is doing, what I think Jesus is speaking to, to this crowd, this non-distinguished crowd is saying, look, y'all, this crowd that's following me, my disciples are coming to me. You are a reminder for the rest of Israel of the covenant of God. As much as salt was an included practice of the reminder of the covenant for God's people in the Old Testament, I think the same thing is holding true here. That the rest of Israel have given themselves over to the Romans. Some are entirely focused on religious, being religiously pure. Some are sitting in judgment and sort of self-righteous over all the people. Some are looking to armed revolt of everything going on. But y'all, this misfit group of people are to be a reminder of who I am. A reminder of the covenant of God. A reminder what it actually means to be Israel and a visible representation of God through the covenant God made with his people, that you are a reminder of what it means. As Guy Jathan, he writes about, he says, Still, Jesus said to these average ordinary people, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. It's the scope of the statement that often surprises us. He doesn't call them the salt or light to Galilee, but the world. Forget the Caesars and Herods and Plato's. The world doesn't need more YouTube stars or social media celebrities. Jesus affirms the world-shaping value of ordinary people who follow the ways of an extraordinary God. And I think that's what's happening here. There's a remnant of people who don't look like what everybody expects. Who aren't the, the, the powerful, they aren't the people who jockeyed for a position, they aren't the people who um, are uh, obeying everything in, in terms of how the Pharisees operated, yet uh, proving to be unjust. It's to a whole lot of nobodies who simply want to follow Jesus, to hear from Jesus and be healed by Jesus. He says, you will be salt. 
You will be a reminder to God's people, to God's nation, to God's land of how much we've lost the plot of the story. To use a British idiom, we've lost the plot of who God's people were supposed to be. And before you think I've gone too far with this interpretation that it's simply about flavoring and keeping from spoiling, let me remind you that the very next section that we're going to cover next week and will probably be the most controversial part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is almost expecting the question, so Jesus, have you come to get rid of the Torah? Have you come to abolish the Torah? Are you, are you getting rid of the laws? And so if Jesus is simply teaching, hey, just go, be, go season the world by good works. If that's all Jesus is saying, no one's going to come up to him and be like, oh, are you getting rid of the Torah? But if he is saying, hey, everything we understand about how the world works and, and who my people are it can, can be this, broken misfits, all the people everybody wrote off, that that is who my kingdom can be built upon. That might inspire people to go, hold on, that's not how we understand the Torah especially amongst the Pharisees, especially amongst the leaders who are constantly saying, no, God's people are those who obey everything in the law and do it perfectly. God's people are those who make every sacrifice, who end up at the temple, and all of you people who can't even go to the temple, you're just not, you're outsiders. You're the, the hararets, the, the, the people of the land. They're, they're sort of a, a, a Hebrew saying, they're sort of like, you're the people who really aren't a part of God's people. I mean, you are by heritage, but you're not really. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. My, my kingdom can be built here. And he speaks of losing saltiness. Now, there's no actual Greek word for saltiness. The word there is actually foolish uh, or dull. Um, so if you become dull, uh, and, uh, and I think the dull is probably a fair translation of that, the, the no longer standing out, if you've kind of dulled the taste of salt. And I think what Jesus is saying is, if you, you are the people who often were forgotten, you weren't the standouts, whether it's the disciples, the four boys who are just simply fishermen, or all these people who are needing help and healing and everything else. But God said, no, you are salt now. In my kingdom, you can be, or you will be the people who stand out, distinct. But you're called to stay Distinct. If you move to being like every other kingdom and every other pattern of this world, then yes, you water down and you lost the point of the story. You've lost what I've actually called you to be and you will be trampled underfoot, which is simply meaning you're going to be unnoticed, unimportant at that point because you're going to be just like everything else that you've been used to and every other kingdom that has come before. Something you can just walk over and not notice. And for these people, it brings total meaning and purpose to who they are by God simply saying, you are salt. And the church that follows culture, and, and we do it way more than we love to admit, I think, function this way. And we miss the plot of the story. But let's talk about light, and we'll come back to bringing it all together. You are the light of the world. Matthew, once again, is using language that's super common, particularly in the book of Isaiah. The light of the world and the light of the nations is all over the book. 
Uh, Isaiah 51, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to hear my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. So I will do this uh, through my peoples. And he says, uh, it is too light a thing that you should, uh, uh, Isaiah 49, too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so he's going to restore Israel for the purpose of being light to the nations. Now remember, the, the starting point of God's people through Abraham is that they would be blessed to be a blessing to all nations. That is a descriptor of what Israel was tasked to do. Even, even Matthew has just quoted Isaiah 9 in the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 4, by saying, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, he's certainly referring to himself, but in this sermon now, he said, you are the light of the world. And so Jesus looks at these people and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he's giving them first an identity, not a list of things to do. These people who have shown up and done nothing up to this point. Like, this crowd has accomplished nothing. We will see the disciples go and do stuff eventually, but they've done nothing. They simply want to hear Jesus, and they want to be healed by Jesus. And with Jesus at the center, pointing to these misfits, he says, you all are what my kingdom looks like. And he assigns to these people, not the priesthood, not the leadership, not the Pharisees, not the rock stars, this collection of people, will be the people Jesus will work through and carry out his mission to bless the nations. He just used language that would have been used for all of Israel to say, no, you guys are that. You are my mission. People who come to listen to the words of Jesus, be healed by him, in humility, following this God-made flesh Messiah. And he says, that, you are the people that will accomplish the mission that I have. Now, let's talk about the two warnings, because they both come with warnings, and I want to preface this section. I'm going to say things that some of you very much disagree with. Your disagreement is welcomed. It is encouraged. I love disagreements. It's okay. I'm not going to preach on everything. And then some texts are just areas that people disagree with. Here's what I think it means, and I don't think it means what we normally think it means. And, um, and whenever I do things like this, I'm not trying to be provoking. I, I just want to ask questions, and, and, and I want you to walk away going, I wonder if that's true. Like, if you walk away that way, amazing. Just sometimes traditional readings of text that we receive, and we'll definitely deal with this next week, don't always reflect the text is actually saying. And the goal here is not to agree with me. If you walk away, like, agreeing with me, that's fine. But if you don't, that's okay. That's not the goal. But I do want to say this. I don't think this text mandates individual evangelism. I've heard this text utilized that way. I've heard it sort of brought about to almost, like, push or shame people into it. I just don't think that's what the text is saying. I mean, let's look at some of those warnings. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good preaching, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's not what it says, by the way. What does a light do no matter what? It gives light, right? That's just what a light does. Because it's light, it does that. Because you're a light, because he said you are, not you will be, you are light. What is our default state? To give light. It's just, it is what light does. 
So the statement about light is already a statement about being. And the warnings given are, well, don't, well, don't cover that. Like, you are light. Don't, don't go into hiding. Don't become just like everything else in the world, like salt, that loses its saltiness. But once again, the instruction is not to go try to become these things. Not, not, not a bunch of imperatives to, to go become light. You are light. You are this thing. If you're a follower, if you are near Jesus, if you're following Jesus, you are light. So just don't go hide. Don't go into a holy huddle. Don't, don't, don't retreat from the world. And by his life, death, and resurrection, what I think Jesus is doing is Jesus has come to form a community that begins to demonstrate to the world what human life can look like under God as their king in charge of the earth. And this group of misfits is the starting point of the project. Like, I think Matthew is more interested in speaking in the Sermon on the Mount and quoting Jesus here to draw our eyes to that more than, well, what am I supposed to do? Because let's be sure to parse out. Let's take the church. How are we invited to be salt and light? What does salt and light do for the world that is showing good works? Let's take the city analogy since that's what Jesus gives us. All right, if we're light, we're, we're like a city. Now, a city on a hill would have been a pretty normative um, picture. Uh, so uh, in, in very ancient places, not like America, uh, cities often get built upon cities. Uh, so, because uh, once you build certain forms of infrastructure, you kind of want to keep those infrastructures. And so uh, often cities get built upon cities. And so um, you will find um, archeological sites all over Israel that are cities built upon cities. And they're called Tel. So Tel Aviv is, a, a Tel is one of those hills. Um, and so you end up with cities that are on hills because that's just what happens over time. Uh, you go to any ancient city, like even Paris, like where the streets are now is like 10 feet higher than what they used to be because cities build upon cities. And so that happens. And these cities are built upon hills and um, cities, if they're functioning as they are meant to do, particularly with Israel, um, the, the instructions of the Torah are wonderful things. Um, they are surrounded by city walls. The city gates uh, are places of justice. Uh, they were places where uh, if you were in need, you can get that need met. They were places of mercy to strangers, to travelers, and to outsiders. So if you were traveling in the hillside at night, which is a very unsafe practice to do in a place like Israel, and you come over the hill in a bend and you see off in the distance a city on a hill that's being lit up at night, it is a picture of safety. It is a picture of security. It's a picture of provision. It's a picture of hope. It's like a lighthouse. Except for a lighthouse is just keeping you from danger. It's like a lighthouse that's welcoming you in, which I guess that analogy doesn't work for lighthouses. But still, um, it is a, a sign of hope. And that's what God is, or Jesus is telling his people. You're, you're, like a, you're like a city lit up at night, providing hope, providing welcome, providing um, justice and mercy to those who need it. That is what you're called to be. And what's noticeably absent from the instruction, like I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's not included here. 
It's not you're going to be incredible light because of your incredible worship music, your great sermons, your slick programming and celebrity platforms, not even good theology, not partisan politics, but the gift the gift that the church gives, the salt and light gift that the church gives is a visible formation of a community based upon weakness and humility that, that witnesses to the reality of the kingdom of God. It's not about how great the church is. It's simply an outpost of the kingdom and all the other stuff. It can either contaminate it or make it better. Sermons and worship can, can, can go either way. But a salt and light community that's founded on on weakness and the humility of Christ, the gentle and lowliness of Christ, not strength or polish or elite. Because this is a group of people who are all in need, and we would be a group of people all in need of God to actually do something. And we have to remember that sin wrecks the human heart, and it causes us to hope in all the wrong things all the time. And that was Israel all the time. Hope in politics, hope in insurrection groups, hope in economic agreements, hope in political alliances through marriage, all the stuff that God ultimately condemned them for. But what Jesus is doing is a charter community, reminding the world of the way the kingdom actually works, that the way of forgiveness is better than revenge that the way of blessing is better than cursing someone out on social media, that the way of humility and serving is better than being on top and being top dog. And a lot of us will sit there and agree, but it, this is a very hard reality to live out. And there's so much of this world that goes against it. We don't value the meek. We value the self-important. The poor in spirit? No, we want the experts who know everything. Morning? No, we need, we need to finish every service with an upbeat song and get out of here and bless you well. And often those are American values baptized in Jesus' language. And I think the church has gotten itself off the tracks at times with that. And we need to be very careful what we bring as an expectation of what Jesus' kingdom would be about. Otherwise, we may miss the kingdom altogether. And there are many throughout the story that we will see who miss it altogether because they come in going, Jesus, this is what your kingdom is like. So a conclusion, it's an invitation for us to gather as the poor in spirit, as the mourning, as the meek, as the peacemakers, as those hungering and thirsting for righteousness or justice, to be the community of faith of Jesus. And it's a tremendous opportunity because guess what? I've worked at churches, that's not the case. And my hope is that we would try things differently <laughs> to be a community of weakness and a bunch of people who are just honest and don't pretend that's not impressed by spectacle. If you want spectacle, I got some recommendations of other churches for you. We're not going to be spectacle. We, we got color lights. Cool. But that's, that's the full extent of our spectacle here. <laughs> but a community that's learning the way of Jesus. And yes, I've, I, know, I know the phrase, Jesus is not the hope of the world, the church is. Or, or the, the church is not the hope of the world, Jesus is. I, I know that. And I agree. Jesus is the hope. But Jesus has made perfectly clear he plans on being the hope through the world, through his followers. So as we move forward with identity, y'all are salt. Y'all are light. If you follow Jesus, that is what you are. You misfits. 
who wonder your value, you're insecure and lonely and exhausted and unseen. You come in here, that sense, you are the salt that God can use for his kingdom. And if you're mourning, you're meek, you're spiritually hurt and sick, you feel forgotten, you are light. Now, right now, for God to show off what his kingdom is actually like. And it's an, it's an Old Testament deal, right? Moses, you can't speak. Okay, I'm going to use that. David, you're a shepherd boy. You don't look anything like a king like Saul did. I can use that. Gideon, you're totally insecure and don't think you can win this. I, I can do that. Hey, you're going to go to battle with Jericho, the most mighty military might uh, in, in the Canaan world. Hey, uh, why don't you send your priest out and sing some songs and see what happens? It's an opportunity for people to see the kingdom at work that is upside down. And what are they going to do when they start seeing the kingdom at work? They're going to see. They're going to see the good work. They're going to see the good deeds. They're going to see the, uh, the, the mercy and the justice and the, and the caring for the other as opposed to itself. They're going to see that in some ways. And yes, this is where talking about it comes in. But that's not the instruction in this text. It will come in later. Don't worry. I'm not anti-evangelism. But the instruction is go be the people that you are already called. And it's beauty. It's good news. And the beauty of this all is it's not by works. Like, I hope we see that. It's not purging our sins and getting it all together. It's the producing humility and faith of our need for salvation. Dale Bruner says this. this is, I'll wrap up with this. Christians who are, the, who are Christians are the salt of the earth. This is the 10th straight statement of fact in the Sermon on the Mount. You folks are, not you folks ought to be, the most significant people on the planet. So Christians are, by the simple fact that they are with Jesus, the salt of the earth. And the Christian ethic is an ethic of become what you are, rather than the Greek or Confucian ethic of become what you should be. In Jesus' teachings, wholeness stands as God's gift at the beginning of performance and not at the end. And how wonderful news is that? That is the greatest news. That it's not once you accomplish being salt and light, then you are. It's, I have made you this now. If you are following Jesus, you are this now. Now go and do and live it out. But that's your identity. And by faith, our identity, forgiven, saved, justified, loved, sons, daughters, that is who you are now. So go live as if it's true.